Taking the journey of healing and reclaiming the self you are meant to be. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, hi, I am Andrea. I'm an adult child. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I am a broken picker syndrome survivor. And actually, do I want to share this? Okay, I'll share this. So I may or may not have a date tomorrow night. Well, it's actually like a coffee meet and greet. He's from an app. And to be completely honest, I don't think that I'm going to meet my person on an app. But you know, you got to take the car out of the garage every once in a while so the battery doesn't go dead. Uh, It's been about six months since I've been on a date. And as far as I know, he does not know about the podcast. You know, I did a Google search. I put all of the information that's in my profile to see if the podcast would show up um, and it does not because then that person would would literally know every single thing there is to know about me. But I have had that problem in the past where I just go ahead and tell them everything there is to know about me on a first date. Um, I'm going to try not to do that. You know, as you guys know, I am unapologetically authentic. Um, I tend to get real deep, real personal, real quick, which most of the time I think is a a blessing, is an asset, Um, but not so much on a first date. So let's see if Andrea can be mysterious tomorrow. We'll see how it goes. And I also realize that sometimes I refer to myself in the third person. I, I think I'm okay with it, but please let me know if it's weird and it's creeping you out. But let's get the show on the road So today, we are diving deep with queen, icon, legend, one of my personal heroes, and one of the pioneers of the adult child movement, Dr. Tian Dayton. Now, this is the first time we have a guest making a reappearance, and I can't think of a better guest to do so. If you haven't listened to episode seven, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you do so. And as I've mentioned, I think in several previous episodes, she has a new workbook out, Adult Children of Alcoholics Workbook. I think that this is a wonderful book for not just adult children of alcoholics, but anyone who grew up in a dysfunctional family or experienced adverse childhood experiences. And I was thinking while I was editing the interview with her, just how grateful I am to be an adult child in today's day and age because of people like Tian, because of people like Janet Wotitz and other pioneers of this movement who have given us the opportunity to heal. Just think about all of the adult children who came before us, who never knew that they were an adult child because it wasn't even a term yet until the late 70s, early 80s. So who never knew that they were an adult child, who never had the opportunity to heal and recover, And so I just feel really, really grateful that um, we live in a day and age where this is a possibility for us. So in my first episode with her, she shared the story of her aha moment when she learned that she was an adult child. Or I guess it 
adult child wasn't even a term then. When she realized that she was suffering from the family disease of alcoholism. And so I want to read to you guys a portion from the introduction of the workbook where she kind of talks about this aha moment that she has. And just to provide a little context, so Tian grew up with an alcoholic father and her husband grew up with an alcoholic mother. And so she's in her her 20s at this point. She's a newlywed. She's a new mom. And they are visiting her mother-in-law who is drinking. And Tian gets real triggered. It starts, you know, bringing up the unresolved pain of the past. And so now I'm going to read you a little passage from the book. A few days into the visit, I just couldn't do it anymore. It was cold or I would have spent more time in the park. I remember saying, I'm getting out of this booby hatch to Brant. I picked up our daughter, told Brant I was going, and caught a bus to the Poconos where we were living at the time. It was winter. I didn't care. I wasn't conscious of the weather as New York City had no snow. We rode for two and a half hours. Once we got there, I drove miles in my little car on snowy roads and Marina and I stayed snowbound in the house for two days. I didn't know what to do. I knew something was terribly wrong. I had gone from the frying pan into the fire, and addiction was here all over again. And something much more than our alcoholic parents. It was us now. It was me. It was our families. I found a copy of Vern Johnson's I'll Quit Tomorrow on a shelf in our library that our family friend Wheelock Whitney had given us. I read it twice, cover to cover twice. I was riveted. I saw my family, my dad, and all of us on these pages, all over them. Something in me was getting the picture. Although Vern didn't talk about children of addicts, this was the story of his own addiction, he did describe dry drunks in detail. This is where I saw Brant, my siblings, my mom, me. Our behaviors were the same as the alcoholic when he was off the sauce and white-knuckling it. We were dry drunks. We were carrying the behaviors that surrounded addiction, although none of us drank. We were hypervigilant, defended, and easily triggered into anger or withdrawal. Although we were very happy to be together, when we fought, we were shadowboxing with ghosts from our past. We had been traumatized by living with addiction and the swirling deterioration of our family structure that followed it. We had PTSD, but neither of us knew that. It was 1978 when people thought only soldiers got PTSD. We just didn't understand how much of our unresolved past was surfacing in our present, which is the hallmark of post-traumatic stress and which is why I wrote the ACA Trauma Syndrome. Pain from childhood was resurfacing decades later, stimulated by our becoming partners and parents. Our re-knitting a new family acted as a trigger for old, unresolved pain and anger. I knew at some deep level that the emotional chaos versus shutdown or denial that has surrounded our alcoholic families now surrounded each of us. We had both imagined that because we no longer lived in our families of origin, we'd left them behind. We thought that because we called our alcoholic parents alcoholics and could talk about it, we were out of denial. But we understood nothing about the residue that growing up with addiction, chaos, denial engendered. We knew nothing about PTSD. Now, I shared in my first episode with her when I read her book, 
the ACOA trauma syndrome. That was such a huge, pivotal moment for me. You know, having the realization that the reason that I would be in gut-wrenching anxiety when a guy didn't text me back after 20 minutes and then within seconds of him texting me back, feeling like I had just downed a bottle of Xanax, you know, feeling like my life was over when a three-week relationship with a bozo would end. This was a post-traumatic stress response. And everything changed for me when I realized that I was dealing with trauma and I started to get the help I needed to deal with this trauma. This is when healing and change really started to happen for me. And this workbook just does a very beautiful job of explaining what happened to us, explaining what the hell is happening to us now, and and how to heal, uh, steps to heal and recover. And I do just want to say that for the Patreon group, that we are going to be going through this workbook. So if anyone's interested in in doing that, head on over to patreon.com slash adultchild. We had our first uh, peer group this last weekend, and it was absolutely amazing. So regardless of whether you join the Patreon or not, I do just want to emphasize the importance of not doing this alone. It, it talks about that in the in the Big Red book. How wanting to do this healing work on our own is just another form of resistance. So I just encourage you, whether it's 12-step meetings or other support groups or the Patreon or whatever, that you seek community because it is so important. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to the new Patreon members. So big thank you to Stacy, Kimberly, Rick, Amy, Brenda, and Valerie. Y'all are the shit. Thank you so, so much. Um, and again, if you have any interest in joining, head on over to patreon.com slash adultchild. And before Tion, you know what I'm going to say? Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcast if you would be so kind. And now, the one, the only, Dr. Tion Dayton. pleasure to introduce a woman who needs no introduction, making her uh, reappearance on the podcast, Miss Tion Dayton. She has a new workbook out, Adult Children of Alcoholics Workbook, and we're just so happy to have her here. Hi, Andrea. Nice to be here. Yeah, so glad to have you here. Oh, this thing's good. It's really good. It's really thick. It's heavy. There's a lot in here. <laughs> no, it's very- How long have you been working on this? you know, 30 years, it's got, it has a lot of (laughs) recently just doing it, but it has a lot of research that this whole journey has been going on since 1980 for me. And the slow build is that when Janet Wojtis did her book, Adult Children of Alcoholics, she came up with that laundry list 
And people started, you know, coming out of the woodwork, identifying with these symptoms, right? And then the codependency movement kind of birthed out of that. The the man who was who published her first book did the forward for the um, workbook, and it's a great story of how he and Janet got together. Um, so then Janet and you know really kind of they led that movement. Gary Seidler, Janet a whole host of professionals. And as I say, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, myself included of ACOAs jumping on board and neuropsychology started coming out. So then we're going adult children of alcoholics, codependency, neuropsych, trauma, PTSD. When we got to PTSD, the penny dropped for me. And we're talking now in the late eighties, for me anyway. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you about that specifically. Yeah, well, the, the penny dropped because uh, obviously an adult child, it became clear to me, was having a post-traumatic stress relation, uh, reaction, which pain from childhood relationships is resurfacing and being reenacted and replayed in adult relationships. But we weren't calling it PTSD at the time. So that's why I wrote the um, ACOA trauma syndrome. And that's kind of ever since I wrote that book, because it's heavy duty, it's intense. You know, you read a chapter and then you kind of pass out for a week and process it. And (laughs) and so I wanted to write something that just had a more refined version of that information. And you could make it personal. You know, you could write out how, how these symptoms work in my life, how, how I can use this exercise to access my own triggered pain what do I do after I access it? I wanted to make something that was much more useful, really, frankly, because, you know, I'll I'll tell you one story that was inspiring too, is I did, I wrote a book called Emotional Sobriety in the middle of all of it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It might be my favorite, that book. It's a little more readable, right? And then I did a workbook and I just sort of tossed it on Amazon just to, because again, I thought this isn't enough. People need more than that. So, and it's sold. It's, it just kept selling. It still sells. And people were doing spontaneous groups, right? Peer groups through with a workbook. And I really kind of feel for everybody who doesn't have the resources to commit to expensive therapy, et cetera. And I think these workbooks provide an opportunity for peer counseling, for just support groups that you get into with some people you know, or for coaches and for therapists and to do at home. But, I, you know, there are a lot of ways you can do it that um, I was inspired to watch because of what happened with the, the emotional sobriety. Yeah, I wanted to specifically ask you about that because I was watching, I was watching an interview. I think you were over in London, um, and you were talking about just kind of the progression of. I think you were talking about addiction, um, but then also with this the adult child syndrome. But I did. I wanted to talk about kind of the progression of how it was treated. So, good question, Andrea. Good. Question. <laughs> 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So yeah, I was reading, I went into, so I have um, the original book, uh, the or I have Janet's book on my Kindle. So I went on there last night and I wanted to search to see if, if trauma was in there at all. And it is, it's in there three times. But so I wanted to know, because you were talking about how you guys initially, and I think maybe you were talking about addiction, but you were just like, we're just, you were freer to try different things, right? And that you were seeing what was working in real time. Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of curious, what has the progression been as far as how you've been treating this, this syndrome throughout? What has that progression looked like? Well, you know, people don't treat this specifically. That's why it's a good <laughs> question. I mean, it, they really don't. That's why I've been doing all this writing on it. And there's not a lot of writing on it. This is the big dilemma, Andrea. ACOAs present as borderline, as depressed, as anxious, as um, not being able to get their future together. All of these are symptoms of PTSD. If you don't wind it back and treat the trauma, and there's plenty of treating trauma now, you're not getting to the pain that's driving the current life complications. Mm -hmm. However, and this is a, in my mind, a big however, I think that ACOAs are unique among that. I think we deal with something way weirder than trauma. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> well, I think, well, for example, in my own life, my husband's life, uh, all my friends, clients, <laughs> colleagues, you know, because I work in the addictions field, we have an alcoholic person that we loved. In my case, I was closer to my alcoholic parents, same with my husband, same with many people I know. So that person I loved turned into a monster periodically. He did with me, to me, at me, everything that as a sober dad, he would have tried to protect me from ever happening to me. So he became a kind of a monster and a damager. And not only did I have to avoid him, so that's a big lesson, you know, I better avoid the person I love the most. And I lost access to my best relationship in the house because he was drunken mm. out of it. So I would just had to, you know, hunker down, wait for him to sober up, hope he did, no guarantee. You know what drunks look like or people on uh, addiction with various forms of addiction. They're they're down for the count. They everything changes, everything looks different. So we not only deal with trauma from somebody who's mean, abusive, etc. We deal with intermittent trauma, and then of course, when people sober up, at some level they don't maybe remember what they did, but they know they did something, and they try to make it up. So your version of a parent is somebody who's either cloying and all over you and trying to be so close and so this and that, gift giving, you name it. And somebody who, who can't stand the sight of you or is abusing you or, or berating you. And this back and forth 
makes it very hard to consolidate. I don't know about if it's, I'd say a self, that, that may be, but also just a forward moving sense of what a healthy relationship should look like, right? I mean, up, down, and sideways. Well, you're going back and forth, no speed bumps in between. That's, that's what I always call lack of emotional sobriety. Not living in four, five, and six. ACOAs go from zero to 10 and 10 to zero, overreaction to underreaction. Connect that to trauma. It's because if you're traumatized, fight, flight, freeze, you are losing contact with parts of yourself. You're freezing them. You're shutting them down so you don't hurt so much. But then when they do get triggered because they, they, they've never been elevated to consciousness, you know, through the thinking mind shuts down when you're terrified, that's fight, fight, freeze. So we don't make sense of what's happening at the time. And unless you sit down and try to understand it later as an adult, you never understand it. And when it gets triggered, you think I'm crazy. Or you think the person who triggered it is the one who you've got a problem with, but you have a problem with a person living inside of you or the people living inside of you. And we as ACOAs need to get that across to ourselves, understand it and do our own work before we um, start to think all our relationships don't work. Tell me about it. Yeah. So then when was it specifically, I, I don't think you answered this, but when was it specifically that it really became crystal clear that this was a form of PTSD? To be really honest, it didn't. I mean, that's why I wrote the AC trauma syndrome because no one was talking yeah. about it. Wow. And I'm not even sure how clear I made it because I was doing sort of the cutting edge of it. But um, I don't think people really get it, Andrea. That's why I think your podcast can be so helpful to people because I still think people don't get fully that it's a PTSD reaction. Mm-hmm. I really don't. It was huge for me. Like when I read your book, Yeah, I mean- that was one of the most profound realizations that I had ever had. Um, And it's been really amazing to have other people who listen to the podcast and also have that realization. It's so, it's so freeing, right? Like it's, you don't know, nothing makes sense. You don't understand. I judged myself so much for the reactions that I had, you know, I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. It's when your head is telling you one thing, you know, but I have literally no control over how my body is reacting. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously awareness has to be the first step to change, right? Yeah. But everything you're saying is really helpful. I didn't know what was mm-hmm. happening. I had no control about what my body was doing. All of that is part of what happens when we get triggered. And it's part of the confusion of the ACOA or, or the um, person with PTSD, because we really We don't know that we don't know, and we don't know what we don't know. And the only path to knowing it is to feel it and then, you know, hit the pause button and just hit it long enough to sit with what you're feeling and and wonder about it and let those images surface and let yourself feel it long enough to kind of name it. You know, I'm not saying everything has to be nailed down in a category, but we have to know we're feeling something and we have to have a sense of what we're feeling. And then the exercises in the workbook are literally designed to help to put all of that into a context, because Mm -hmm. what happens with trauma is you lose a sense of context and you start thinking, oh, my whole childhood was traumatic. Well, not necessarily. It might have been isolated times, periods of time. You might have had better years and worse years. 
But until you can feel that and heal that, it just feels like everything is, is off track. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I had it. Maybe a hundred percent. Okay. I get you. Um, I had a, actually, so I posted on my Instagram and asked if people had questions for you specifically. And I got this question twice by two different people and just asking about just really having a difficult time feeling the feelings and sitting with it. And they wanted to know if you had any specific advice. (laughs) That's such a good question. My heart, you know, goes out and I just, you know, wondering about that because here, here's what I think. I'm trying to think of the most helpful thing to say. I just want to say a couple of phrases. Don't expect it to make sense. Mm. Expect to feel very vulnerable and expect to feel confused all over again. Distressed, disturbed, disoriented all over again. And just try to live through that feeling. And here's a bit of good advice, I think. Stay with your body. Watch how that feeling, or sense how that feeling, witness how that feeling is surfacing in your body. Because it is, you know, is it coming up through your legs? Is it coming up uh, through your chest? Is it, it will come up through all those places, your neck, your head, all of that. And are there, do you see any other images? Let it let it surface and simply witness it. Um, I used to be a yoga teacher and there was a wonderful thing we would say is watch your thoughts as if you were sitting on the bank of a river, watching the river flow by with no thought of controlling the river and just watch. And I think if you can do that and understand that even though you may want to do something, control something, shut it down because it hurts too much, living through the feeling and making these connections and, under, and witnessing the body uh, alongside is, is healing. That's how you heal. So don't go for the, the big aha, go for the process. And the more you can get comfortable doing that process, the better you'll get at it. The other one is withdraw your projections. If you are having a fight with somebody, before you decide they're the whole problem and the whole cause of everything that's wrong with you, hit the pause button. Just take a break and wonder about it for a while. What's getting triggered in you, not just from this interaction, but that you can trace back to old times when you felt rejected, humiliated, alone, criticized? Why are you having such a big reaction? And why is what is being said, making you feel so porous and going straight through you? You know, we don't want either rigid defenses that nothing can get through, but nor do we want to be so porous that everything gets through something in between. And the more you can feel your feelings, the more you get a felt sense of what four, five, and six is like. And four, five, and six is freedom. You want to be able to think and feel and behave in a in a more modulated area. Now, is 10 or one ever appropriate? Um, that's a good question. Um, well, say one will allow you to survive. It's even zero. 
if you look at a little deer whose mother has left, they are motionless for hours and they will, they will pop up when their mother returns or they hear her signal. So they're in a survival mode. That is freeze. That is feign death. So nothing kills me while my mother isn't around to defend me. Um, that's what zero looks like. It's a survival mode. You don't want to be in survival mode all the time, but it's appropriate if you need to, you know, be utterly still and survive. 10 is a, um, a fight flight mode. So that flight is absolutely appropriate because if you need to get out of the way of danger, you need to do it fast and without thinking. So that is, that is an important one, but then you need to circle back and think about what happened later because your thinking mind was shut down and all you did was run. And same goes with fight. Fight is, I, I think fight is a warlike thing, survival. When is it really appropriate to fight with a friend, spouse, or child <laughs> at a 10 level? I, I don't think, I think that's what, what, what damaged us. Mm -hmm. So is there anything in this book that is new? Or I guess my question is, let's say in the past five years, have you had any significant ahas or realizations or understandings as far as the ACOA trauma syndrome? You know, I think the most significant one is um, the severity. This is a growing aha. Just the severity, to finally accept the severity of the adult child syndrome because of this loving someone who's morphing in and out of reality and how it mm -hmm. affects our sense of reality. And the interesting science backup on that, that I've known about for many years, but it, it just leapt into my mind when I, as I kept making this connection, Rob Anda, who is just a, a lovely man from the CDC, who did the adverse childhood experiences study this, from the CDC, along with Vincent Folletti of Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser. You know, they weren't looking for addiction. Kaiser Permanente is an insurance company. They wanted to know what makes people come in for a lot of office visits and how do they reduce that so they can spend less money. That's the whole thing Kaiser Permanente was looking for. But what kept popping up over and over and over again as a top cause of childhood trauma was living with addiction, parental addiction. And that is because if you think about it, if you're addicted, if you're drunk, all of your governors are down, you're more likely to rage, uh, abuse emotionally, physically, and sexually, abandon, check out, terrify children by just looking like a scary monster or like a passed out dead person. Or just play with your psyche by being one of those alcoholics who starts at five and then by seven, you just don't quite know who's, who you're in the room with. You know, but there's no form of addiction that isn't weird and distressing to live with. So I think for me, it's just been a, it's, it's not like it's new. It's a slow acceptance of how very, very serious it is. And how it also sets you up for physical and emotional and mental problems later in life. It just absolutely does. Okay. So I want to talk about relational trauma repair, which is part of psychodrama. 
Actually, that's not part of psychodrama. That's, that's a model I started that is now I call sociometrics. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's I I use psychodrama in it. Okay. But the reason I developed it is because I wanted to get psychodrama to, you know, people don't don't um, want to get tons of training in psychodrama. So I'm creating ways of working with people that require less training, but are efficient and psychoeducational and use psychodrama and what we call sociometry. And so do you incorporate relational trauma repair in the book? Are oh, there sure. tactics? And, yeah. Oh, sure. I'm always doing that because it's everything I do. I think because I am an ACOA and because I, you know, if you work with traumatized people, I'll tell you, you I can't tell you how many of them wind up being ACOAs or, you know, children of some form of trauma. But anyway, I, I started out as a Montessori teacher in my 20s. And then I trained to be a therapist. And it was very interesting to me how much my Montessori training, child development, helped me as a therapist. We didn't have that much child development training in uh, master's and PhD programs that I was in. But I had a lot as a Montessori teacher. And I just surmised that I was always working with the child inside of the adult. And my career, I'm talking about this 35 years ago, at least 40, um, my career has only made that clearer. Mm. And if you think about it, children are so vulnerable. You know, this thing about kids are resilient. Whoa. Why do people think <laughs> that? If you look at a child's face. And you see what happens in their face and body if they get hurt or shocked. It sinks way in. And they're at the short end of the power balance, you know. They don't have a lot of defenses. And they're stuck trying to make it work with whoever, whatever adult is in their room and all of that stuff. So they get plenty traumatized. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it doesn't have to be, you know, abuse to hurt them. It can just be coldness and disinterest and all that stuff, bullying. So if you were to surmise, I mean, there's how many chapters are there in your, it's like 14 or something. It's going um, to be much thicker than I meant to be. No, it's great. I can, it could be, I it. could use it as like, a, if I like don't have my arm weights, I could like use exactly. it as like an arm weight for my exercise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a nutshell, how do you describe the process? Well, emotional literacy and emotional regulation. It's learning how to feel your feelings long enough so that you can translate them into words and elevate them to a conscious level so you can reflect on yourself, reflect on your life, reflect on your relationships so that you can, you know, drum roll, please think about what you feel. <laughs> I mean, mm. that's the whole ticket. And then let's see. So, and then emotional regulation is this business of, you know, going from a state of numbness and shutdown. And when that gets triggered, because we have no steps in between that we practice, feel the feelings, translate them into language, right size them, reflect on them, tolerate them, you know, order them. We haven't gone through that process because we've just shut it down. We go then just to explosion or implosion. We, we either withdraw and disconnect or we just, you know, burst like a hot water pipe. So the other thing is learning how to regulate emotions, but emotional literacy 
is crucial in regulating emotions. Also it, crucial is that the body be part of this whole process because the body really knows the story. And when you can look at your physiological reactions and wonder about them, okay, my chest is really tightening up. Wow, my throat's going dry. Maybe I'm scared of something. Um, my legs are, are vibrating. I wanna run. You know, I've got tension all over. This doesn't happen for no reason. Now it's not always historical, but if something does get triggered that has an historical component, you want to sit with your body and allow your body to surface enough of it so that you can start to feel it, uh, make some associate. You don't even have to make associations. You will get images from your own life. They will make themselves if you sit with it. This isn't a big thinking thing. Well, that's what I wanted to ask too. I was reading Healing Trauma by Peter Levine and mm-hmm. um, and I had a, a woman on a couple of weeks ago who was talking about somatic healing. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I think is interesting and I'm curious her thoughts on this as far as not having the memories and not necessarily needing to remember in order to heal the trauma. But I would think, well, a lot of, a lot of adult children don't remember a lot of the things that happened mm-hmm. to them. I'm somebody that I have very clear memories, mm-hmm. but I would think that with, with this, with the adult child syndrome, part of it is, yeah, it's the stored trauma, but then the other part of it is like the faulty beliefs and the, you know, the faulty core beliefs and fears. And so how important is it to know what happened or to remember what happened? Or can you just clear, can you just heal it somatically? Well, I think, I I think it's never one thing. I think that's a good question. I think a piece of it is for sure somatic. But if you're really uh, allowing the soma to articulate to come forward, words will follow, images will follow. It 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 just happens that way. Now, if it doesn't happen that way, don't worry about it. Let the healing happen. Let yourself feel better. Let your body heal. Let your body release tension. But if you, for example, uh, yoga is very good for trauma. If you sit in meditation. I used to sit in meditation a lot and I was amazed at, and this was in my, I started in my twenties before I knew about therapy much or any of that stuff. Um, And I had done therapy, but we didn't understand it that well, but these feelings would come up in meditating, you know, if you meditate long enough and I would, my witnessing part of the mind would start to watch my feelings and maybe I would have tears going down my eyes. Images would come up. I'd witness that pieces started floating into place. You know, oh, that I just observed it, as I had said, the banks of a river. I think if you do that kind of somatic work, the images and the feelings will come. I I don't think it's something to worry about, nor do I think you have to uh, understand everything, you know, because understanding takes time. I'm, I'm, 71, I'm still understanding everything, you know, I don't think you have to understand everything, but the understanding will come. Yeah. That's, I think that's the other thing about this too, is I try to emphasize how this ain't no quick fix that this takes time to work through all this stuff. And it's kind of the interesting piece of it is we have to be the one to take action, obviously to get help and healing, but at the same time, we are kind of not in control of the process. Right. And we have to kind of let the healing 
take its own course and it's probably not going to happen as quickly as we'd like it to happen. Well, I think that's a really good message for you to be getting across to your listeners because this is this is about creating a new design for a living. This is about making friends with your insides. And if you see it as a journey and one that is constantly uh, shedding light and more light and more light and more good feeling inside yourself and more, it's a baby steps journey. And there is no reason. That's just a reactive thing to want to do it fast. That's, that is not doing the work. Yeah, it's a trauma response in a way. It is completely the trauma response. It's wanting to control the feelings. Make a, I, I talked, I'm working on a book right now. And I'm outlining two kinds of what I would call the trauma narrative. And one of them I'm calling the intellectual narrative and one, the affective feeling narrative, because we all know people who tell a story of their past and what happened to them. And it, it, and they just can talk about it without it feel because that was me. Yeah. Because you can talk about it, you can feel about it. And they're, they're rather different. I mean, what you want to do in healing is integrate that talking feeling. But there, there are people who can tell the story but can't feel the feelings. And I don't think that's what healing looks like. It, healing looks like if you can, the affective narrative, when you talk about it, you're feeling as you go. It doesn't mean you're collapsing into it or sobbing or any of that stuff, but you aren't shutting it down every other word. You're not distancing from it and avoiding the feelings. Well, that was one of the reasons why I didn't think that my childhood had impacted me that much because- I could talk about it, but it was like, I was a newscaster standing in front of like a burning house, but like the house was mine, <laughs> you know, That's really good. <laughs> what, so what got you feeling about it? Because you've described it so eloquently. I mean, well, hitting bottom, I mean, hitting the relationship stuff and realizing that that's what it was related to. I feel like I was able to always talk about it so much because because my parents talked to me so much about it. It wasn't a secret, you know? I, I knew what was going on at like the age of seven or at least as much as I could, um, but we talked about it. But I just would recount it like it was just matter of fact, you know? What did you, may I ask, was one of your parents an active alcoholic or in recovery? Yes. No, my mom was an active alcoholic. And she would talk about being an active alcoholic? No, I mean, she would, she would tell me that she was going to stop drinking, but my dad would talk to me about it because I was his confidant, right? I was his emotional support since it was a secret from the rest of the world. See, that's a real trap. I mean, what he needed to do is get your mother into recovery. I mean, yeah, not, no that, shit. Not, <laughs> not that he can do it single-handedly, but that to make you his confidant and keep her in your loop is... Uh, not no boundaries. You know what I mean? So how would you learn that your sense of self and your future relationships didn't have to include all kinds of drama and up and down and anxiety and mood swings, you know, that would normalize all that. I'm not saying he shouldn't talk to you about it. I think it's good that he could, you know, clue you in, but uh, it doesn't help that he not in the unload with me way and you be my friend and when she's out out of it and and the thing too is you know he traveled all the time for work he knew that she was driving me around drunk i mean he would call me up while i was out of town and i would tell him if she was drunk or not you know it was interesting though because the only time we really connected emotionally even though it was very unhealthy was when she was when she was drunk and emotionally unavailable to him 
that's when him and I got along. And the rest of the time we had a very tumultuous relationship. And then my, I was very, 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 very close with my mom, except for when she was, you know, drunk and checked out. You see, you, you're the poster child for how confusing this stuff gets. I mean, well, you know, Andrea, I mean, that is, that's a really tough, uh, that's really tough relationship wise, because what do you learn with your dad? Will you learn that you need to be available to jump to his needs when he stops getting what he needs from who he should be getting it from? you're kind of second in, in line there and you need to be at the ready. And then to be really close to your mom and to have her send you the signal that, you know, I love you so much. You're so wonderful, but I just need to check out now for a while. And when I'm checked out, you come second. Don't demand from me. Don't. That would be a really screwed up message. Would be hard for you to know how to I'm not saying make yourself come first. I'm not, but to make yourself count and not to think that your way into a relationship is to serve the rather screwed up needs of somebody else. That dynamic just repeated itself throughout my life and childhood. Like I became the school slut in the seventh grade, which was great. But the way that that is um, translated in adulthood in romantic relationships was just the the willingness to just accept mere crumbs. Well, I think that I've becoming the school slut I've heard before, because that is, that is the reenactment of, I don't really count and I will get my needs by taking what's, you know, the guy after he's been with his real girlfriend or the guy who's coming at 11 after he drops his date off or, you know, just I'll serve the, I'll get in any way I can. I'll get the attention any way I can. That's, I mean, that's a classic reenactment. That's for sure. Well, and and then the projection that I portrayed to the rest of the school, the way that I protected myself was I leaned into it. And I was like, I don't care that you guys think this about me. It was like, I made it seem like I was consciously choosing to be this and I didn't care. I get it. And when you, when it's kind of saying, you know, it's, um, I'm special and I want this. I want this. Yeah. Oh, sure. That's so typical. That's the reaction formation, you know, the, the going to the opposite to, um, kind of undo the pain of feeling less than given the fact that you had a father who prized you when he ran out of the person he really wanted. And then, you know, was tumultuous with you, which is just, you know, don't engage with me. Don't, don't need from me anymore. You probably still needed it. You'd gotten used to being so close and then you were suddenly thrown out to the side. Then of course you misbehave. I mean, not misbehave, but you, why are you doing this? Come on, pay attention, you know? So then you learn how you can get attention. What happened was like at 12 was when I started to drink and act out. And then 14 was when I got sent to the Karen foundation for the first time. So then what happened was like from 14 until 19, when I eventually got sober, I became the, I became the focus of the family. And so my mom stopped drinking as much. My parents stopped fighting as much. And that worked, that worked to save the family. You know, I think initially it showed up in separation anxiety. Then I acted out in the seventh grade, got kicked out of the school. But then once I started drinking and smoking pot in eighth grade, that worked. 
that worked in, in, in fixing the family and made me the problem. So then I was the focus for the next five years or so. So look what you learned from that. Mm-hmm. If I take on the problem, act it out, turn my life over into being the problem person, my mom and dad pull together, they act healthier. My mom still doesn't get the treatment they decided I needed, but they, they hide the disease even further. My mother doesn't mm-hmm. address it in the open. My father doesn't get her into treatment, but he does get me into treatment. So why am I the one who's got to get better on behalf of the whole family? Why do I have to do all the work and they don't have to do it? So I wanted to ask you, what are some indicators that trauma has been resolved? Well, one is the biggest is um, when you can dive, when, when you're not preoccupied all the time, when you can divert your attention towards or away from what happened, talk about it, but not in that sing song way in a, in a genuine feel, feel about it. Um, but you're not living in it. You're no longer, it's not when it gets triggered inside of you, you're not going to that 10 or one place. You're able to stay in four, five, and six. That's what healing looks like. It doesn't look like that you never get triggered and it doesn't look like that you don't have strong feelings or feelings. It just looks like you don't have unconscious um, rages or, or withdrawing and shutting down and the doors, all of that stuff. You can think about what you're feeling rather than act it out. Okay. And then another question. So like alcoholism, right? It's never healed and it's a daily reprieve. And it's something that we have to treat on a daily basis. Is that still the same when it comes to trauma? Like, do you feel like, is this something like you work on your trauma and then let's say you work through it and then you stop, like, is it going to, is it going to show its head again? Like alcoholism does. Um, I think, you know, you're, you can be tender to the touch in certain areas always. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to be collapsing or withdrawing or raging or acting out. It, it means that it also has a very um, positive side. You know, you develop a lot of strength when you go through something and you can become a very spiritual person. You can know what life is really worth because you've you've sunk to the bottom and you you know you know what good feels like you're you're there was a woman who had been in the holocaust and i heard her speak one time and then she said this she won some kind of an award and i heard her say this again so i heard it once from her six feet away and i heard it once from her on tv she had said you know i um I will never get over the feeling, the magic of an ordinary evening at home, or as you called it, the magic of a boring evening at home. Mm-hmm. And boy, did I know what she was talking about, not as somebody who'd gone through the severe trauma she had, but as somebody who had gone through the trauma of a house that was in daily disorder and disarray and hurt. And I used to, after I married my husband, and I'm not trying to say we've been together maybe 50 years, and I'm not trying to say it's all been smooth and there have never been ups and downs and so on, but it was so much better. And I am still, after 50 years, not 
not oblivious. I mean, I'm, I still feel the magic of a boring evening at home because I know what it's like to love it and lose it and to love it and have it be there for another day mm. and have it just be smooth and have nobody crash in on your evening screaming at you or wake you up in the middle of the night and and make you talk to them or all the stuff that scare you in the middle of the night, footsteps on the stairs, touch you in ways you don't like. This is all stuff that happens to us in an alcoholic home. And not to have that intruding on my day-to-day thing is magic. It's beautiful. And that is that's worth everything. That's how spirituality is born, you know? So there's much beauty that comes from trauma. So it's not that you just get over the trauma, you transform it into, you spin straw into gold. Mm. Well, I think that that's a beautiful place to end it. (laughs) (laughs) Top that. So I've already been promoting your book quite a bit. So I'm going to keep doing it. I'm your biggest promoter. The rest of the day, I'm just going to go stand on the street corner in San Francisco and (laughs) dance with the book. (laughs) I'm going to bring it to the gym and use it as my weights. Um, I'll I'll, um, include everything in the show notes and we'll definitely have you back on a million times because I could talk to you forever. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I I, uh, really enjoy talking to you and I think you're doing wonderful stuff with this. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I I know you heard something that could help you on your own journey. If you didn't, what the hell is wrong with you? Thank you, Tian, again. It's really amazing just to be able to share space with such a badass. So check out the show notes for links to the workbook as well as uh, to her website. I love all of her books. The ACUA Trauma Syndrome is an absolute must read for every adult child. So is Emotional Sobriety. And I also love um, The Soulful Journey of Recovery. She's just amazing. Um... So next week, um, I have Dr. Drew's daughter, Paulina Pinsky. Super pumped for that. So you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. If you have comments, questions, whatever, insights, want to chat with me, see show notes for details there. And I'm going to see y'all shit shows next week for another fabulous episode of Adult Child. It's going to be raw. It's going to be vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise.